Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Marion. And I'm Brian. And this is a podcast about policy, culture, identity, and how all of those things intersect. Yeah. And today we've got an interview that I did with Talila Lewis, who is a disability justice activist and all around super dope person who I saw speak at the Data for Black Lives conference back in January. And so, yeah, I feel like I learned a lot from this conversation. Um, Talila just has a lot of fascinating things to say and a really interesting perspective. And I won't build it up anymore. So enjoy. Give me your name, what you do, and why you do what you do. Mm. My name is Talila. Everybody calls me uh, TL. So my name is Talila Lewis. Everybody calls me TL. Um, I always struggle around the question about what I do. It's um, mm-hmm. because I do a lot. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> um, what I do and why I do what I do. I guess I'll start with why I do what I do and then I'll try to move to some of the things that I do. And I know that I'll, I'll just honor now that I'll forget some of the things or it'll be left out. There's too many things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I, uh, do what I do because, uh, there's a lot of folks who are suffering and because, you know, my ancestors work, I feel like we'll be in vain if we don't carry it forward in some sort of meaningful way. Um, The work right now, um, among other things, is trying to get um, negatively racialized communities, so Black folks, Indigenous folks, Latinx folks, uh, to really acknowledge the intersections of a lot of identities, especially around uh, race, disability, and class. So disability is the big um, thing that kind of needs to be um, discussed and addressed, even if it's discussed in our own culturally um, appropriate ways, right? Um, and then the the on the other side, but related, I um, the work is getting white disabled folks to uh, stop erasing um, disabled experiences and intersected experiences um, in Black communities, Indigenous communities, Latinx communities, um, and I also run. Uh, uh, on a volunteer basis, a nonprofit called HERD, helping educate to advance the rights of deaf communities, HERD, H-E-A-R-D. We work on um, ending, combating mass incarceration and ending um, the hyper incarceration of disabled folks. So most folks know that mass incarceration is this violent uh, behemoth uh, where we're quite literally um, caging uh, whole communities. Um, most people recognize the class and race components of mass incarceration, but what most people don't realize is that over half of the folks killed by cops annually are disabled people who usually have some other intersected identity of marginality. Uh, people don't realize that the vast majority of our prison population is quite literally disabled in one way or another, uh, has a history of addiction, has uh, history of trauma and abuse never that have never been addressed, um, in addition to, again, those other marginalized identities that we discuss more often and try to um, try to address. So 
right now the work is just kind of uh, changing the cultural conversations mm -hmm. uh, or maybe um, enhancing them and making them intentionally critically intersectional around disability um, and how specifically um, ableism and racism are quite literally inextricably linked, mm -hmm. always have been and always will be. So that's the short of it. Very cool. But yeah, I remember you saying that at the Data for Black Lives conference that the root of ableism is anti-Blackness and the root of anti-Blackness is ableism and the mm -hmm. two cannot be disconnected in our country's context. And I, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could sort of walk walk us through that idea a little bit more because mm -hmm. I will like in full honesty, like I think disability rights and disability justice movements are things that I'm new to. And mm -hmm. I think it's a huge blind spot for me, just like ability in general. Um, and so we'd just sort of love to hear more about that concept. Cool. So the first thing is we want to steer clear of uh, use of disability as metaphor. So we don't want to say uh, are dumb to or deaf to or say blind spots and things like that. So, gotcha. um, but that, so, I mean, and this it's, it's, again, this is how ableism is woven into colonial language, right? Because you wouldn't naturally say that. You've learned that from right. somewhere. Uh, and, and then the somewhere is what needs to be questioned and the somehow is what needs to be questioned. Um, but quite literally, um, if you think about what ableism is, and I've actually been working on a definition and I have a working definition of ableism that goes beyond what white disability communities have created. So if you ask most white disabled folks, and I'll, and I'll get to the answer to your question through this. Mm -hmm. If you ask most white disabled or deaf folks what is uh, ableism, they will give you a very simplistic, ableism is discrimination against disabled and deaf people um, because people think we're less than because we can't walk, speak, or because we think differently, et cetera, et cetera, right? And sure, to a degree, that's correct. The problem is that doesn't take into account the ways in which um, Ableism is a systemic oppression in the same ways that we understand racism to be such. Mm -hmm. um, and also, it doesn't take into account how ableism was quite literally created by white, wealthy <laughs> power holders. And so um, I'll start with this. Um, this is my shortened um, definition of disability. Um, and I might, I'm paraphrasing, but um, ableism is a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, and excellence, right? And that those societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, and so-called excellence are quite literally rooted in eugenics and anti-blackness and in capitalism, right? And so to unpack that a little bit, what we know is that my ancestors, I'm the descendant of African enslaved peoples, quite literally were banned from reading, right? It was illegal. Um, and now, and this has been for quite some time, literacy is some sort of purported metric of intelligence, right? So that's the simplest example where it's like, oh, wait, 700 years of deprivation of a particular language, and now there's comparisons between people who had access for 500, 600 years and people who quite literally were had eyes gouged out and hands cut off for the acts of, of 
attempting to read and write, right? So in English, to be clear, right? (laughs) Um, So that's the simplest example of how we see it. But every single form of oppression is actually rooted in ableism. So if you think about what uh, various oppressions are, let's just take sexism. Sexism is this idea, this systemic idea that um, patriarchal presenting or patriarchal um, folks are inherently superior, right? Um, And that fems or women uh, are inherently and trans folks are inherently inferior. So these ideas of inferiority and superiority are rooted in ableism. And the same is true with racism, right? So we'll jump back to racism. If you understand the roots of racism, um, it was created by scientists, doctors, um, preachers, pastors, economists, um, all ethnologists, all of whom came up with ideas around uh, inherent superiority of people who allegedly were white, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, we know that that has changed over time. What is white has changed over time. It's continuing to change. No one seems to be able to put their finger on it except the people who claim to be white, right? Right. Um, And everything else is built around that. And everyone else is inherently inferior, Mm -hmm. right? So, and that's built around um, whether it's body and or mind. Um, Another really good example of how you see, and I always say that disability is created. Like, so the question is not, and sure, there are things that cause disability, but I think it's important to talk about the creation of disability. The ways in which white folks have created um, disability for indigenous folks, black folks, Latinx folks, and so on, is by saying that particularized things are required, money, job, literacy, educational access, um, you name it, families to be together, and quite literally making it impossible for our communities to have those things, right? Mm -hmm. Forced familial separation. You literally stole our bodies and separated and sold us off, bred us, and then said, oh, family units are so critically important. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, something's wrong with you. And yet, right now, I'm literally, just yesterday, I asked somebody, where are their people from, right? They look like a cousin of mine. They're not from anywhere I know. But we're literally still searching for our people. Right. But now, oh, that's something that's required to be American, to be in, you know, superior, et cetera. Literacy is another great example. Well, you know, now we're going to give literacy tests and standardized testing. But what we know is that the people who create those tests determine who what's the, the makeup of the people who will be able to pass those tests. Right. So that's why black folks, low income folks, uh, indigenous folks struggle with standardized testing. And now we're still using those as some sort of metric of intelligence, of ability. Um, And again, so this is how we see the roots of ableism and racism having quite literally always existed together. Um, If you're talking about a particularized group of people being inferior, that is quite literally ableism. But here's how capitalism and and, um, productivity come to play. And this is really important. the idea of people needing to produce things to be deemed important, right? Uh So what we know is that our people were inherently important. Everyone is inherently important simply because they breathe and exist. That's disability justice. Um, You don't need to produce anything. You don't need to be active. You don't need to have all of your limbs. You don't need to be able to speak. Your existence means that you are valuable. 
what ableism creates is this idea of the need to make the human produce or a commodity, right? So that's how we see things like Barnum and Bailey putting on freak shows with albino black people. So that's a disabled black person. Now that's a freak. So they can make money off of those bodies post emancipation. So prior to emancipation, our bodies were valuable to uh, colonialists, imperialists through, you know, hundreds of years of labor. Right. And then that's right. So the question then becomes, how do we make value out of these things that are now of no value to us? And that's how we transferred into convict leasing systems. That's how we ended up with the medical industrial complex. And this is really important. In 1840, um, and this is uh, pre-emancipation and pre-reconstruction, in 1840, the United States uh, took its sixth census. Um, It was published in 1841. This census is really important because it allegedly was the first time where the United States government was going to um, figure out how many, and I quote, um, insane and idiots existed in the United States. Oh okay. God. They decided that it was important that they would also uh, count black insane and idiots and give the delineation of how many enumeration of how many black insane and, idi- and idiots existed and how many white insane and idiots existed. And this is the time during there was a, a northern and southern split. Mm-hmm. So we had freed black peoples in the north. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of enslaved, millions of enslaved Black peoples in the South, um, African peoples, to be clear. Um, and, uh, and go figure, the United States Census said that in, in 1841, when it was published, it said, oh, imagine there's more, quote unquote, insane and idiot Black folks who are among the free Black population uh-huh. than the enslaved population. So it was then used as pro-slavery propaganda to say, mm-hmm. see, enslavement is better. Yeah. The, these poor Black people, and they said that the burden was not on Black people, this whole slavery thing. Oh, you know, poor white people for having to take care of these brutes, <laughs> right? And the more you free them, the more they the more depend on the state. Become. That's yeah. right. Insane and idiots. Right. And so, again, when you're understanding and this is the problem with erasure of um, race and conversations around disability. So if you talk to most white disabled people, there's no analyses around these things. There's no conversation around the fact that disability was quite literally created to further um, subjugate uh, indigenous and black peoples. And then there's no conversation around what that means for people who currently live at the intersection. And I guess the last thing I'll say before we, um, before I let you ask me more questions, and this is probably the most important component in terms of modern day understanding of these connections. The way Black, Indigenous, Latinx folks talk about disability mm-hmm. is very different. So I have a good friend, Dustin Gibson, Um, who's working with me. He's Black and disabled too. He's working with me and we're collecting um, Black music Mm -hmm. that actually talks about disability. And in none of the songs, do you hear the word disability? Right now we're up to 140 hip hop, um, soca, calypso, um, R&B songs. Um, and and, And the reason you don't necessarily hear Black folks saying 
oh, I have a disability, I'm in mental health crisis, da da da. One is because all of that language was created by white folks. Um, two, because disability is so intertwined with our actual being, right? Yeah. So like, we don't even need to name that it exists because we live through just like, it's, it's part and parcel of our lived experience, right? Because we know that trauma and oppression causes disability, right? So, you know, poverty is a cause and consequence of disability. Oppression and deprivation of needed resources is a cause and consequence of disability. And so our lived experiences, literally just talking about being hungry, needing to eat, not having any job opportunity, so you got to push on the street, going to the, you know, underground economy. All of that is actually conversation about disability, about trauma, about all the things that white folks get paid to talk about in the formalized lingo, right? Um, and, and in our cases, it gets erased because we're not using the right words, because we don't have research studies on it, because, uh, you know, no white person has said, oh, we agree with what those black people have been saying this whole time. That's a disability. And actually now we are getting those white people to put their rubber stamps on our hundreds of years of explaining that we've been depressed, oppressed, um, traumatized, um, having complex PTSD, et cetera. Um, and I know I said that was the last thing, but there's one more thing that I, that is really important. Um, right now I'm working on a piece. I think I mentioned this in the presentation that you were, um, that you witnessed that data for black lives. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a piece called an ode to the runners. Um, so I think I need to give background on that. I didn't really have a chance to, and this again goes back to how our disability and blackness inextricably linked. What we know is that when our ancestors, um, tried to escape enslavement and did successfully escape enslavement, folks like Frederick Douglass, um, um, Harriet Tubman, who also was disabled, um, Frederick Douglass is actually neurodivergent, which is a whole other conversation. Um, most of the folks whose names we do know, we, we have to recognize disability in them, and that's a whole other conversation. But white folks um, called the, the running from enslavement uh, drapidomania. They said it was an actual insanity, uh -huh. right? They said white folks called our work stop in protest and resistance of enslavement on plantations, uh, rascality or dysasia ethiopica. So the word rascal quite literally comes from black folks refusing to work um, in protest on plantations, um, and it was deemed a mental illness um, by mainstream doctors and scientists, white eugenicists, right? Um, quite literally, not only was it illegal, so Harriet Tubman's body and mind was illegal, Frederick Douglass's body and mind were illegal because, and, and Frederick Douglass has a quote um, that he was, uh, during one of his presentations, he said, I appear this evening as a thief and a robber. I stole this head, this body, these limbs from my master and ran off with them, right? And so that's a statement to the criminality of escape. But what most people don't talk about is the dual um, diagnoses of mental illness that people like him and Harriet Tubman um, were given by white um, slave-holding and wealthy people. Um, and so that connects um, this thing. So fast forward to modern day, what we see is, quote-unquote, resisting arrest. Mm -hmm. Well, you were about to hit me with your club, sir. <laughs> what, what would you have me do? Right. And it's a very natural and intelligent response 
to violence, right? Purely logical. Put your hand up. Yourself. Yeah. That's right. Oh, I'm being tased. Oh, stop resisting. Well, I can't control my body right now because there's electricity running through it, right? right. Um, so all of these things become resisting arrest. We've seen um, quote unquote excited delirium used to justify murder of uh, disabled and mostly black indigenous folks in jails and prisons. So Natasha McKenna, who was killed in, uh, I think, Alexandria um, jail about four years ago. Uh, now I might be a little bit off on the time frame. Uh, she was literally naked, black, disabled in the midst of a mental health crisis, naked, uh, and about seven white COs um, and, you know, all their gear, ta- had her strapped to a chair, tased her to death. And then on, the, on her death record, it says that she, you know, her cause of death was excited delirium, right? We also see excited delirium used on our disabled and uh, and negatively racialized kids' documents in school when the school is trying to, um, against their will, touch them, put them in uh, restraint and seclusion, mm-hmm. literally on the kids' records. It says, oh, excited delirium. And what we know is that doesn't even exist. It literally was just pulled out of the sky. So what we see is white folks um, deeming us insane, um, creating disability by requiring that we have particularized uh, levels of intelligence based on their ideas of what it means to be intelligent. And that is why racism and ableism can't be disconnected. So I could go on, obviously, for hours about this, but I hope that gives a little bit of context to what I mean by the root of ableism is racism and the root of racism is ableism. Yeah, no, that was extremely helpful context. I think I want to say a couple of things in response. The first, I want to make sure I don't forget to thank you for just checking my language. Um, That was not even something that I was conscious of. And so I appreciate you just... I appreciate your grace in pointing that out. It is just sort of wild how much we internalize just oppressive and colonized language. But yeah, so thank you for that. Um, I also was really struck by what you said about the idea that people need to produce things in order to be valuable. And that is something that I had not considered from um, an ableist standpoint at all. It was something that has, it's something that's bothered me a lot when we're talking about like immigrant communities and how you know, like activists like to hold up these super productive immigrants and say like, oh, these are the sorts of people that we want to, that, you know, Trump wants to turn away and that's terrible. And always picking people who are like, you know, doctors or, you know, in the armed services or something like showing that, hey, they have value because they're producing something. And that was not, Mm -hmm. yeah, like that was something that's bothered me for a long time, um, but I had never considered it from that perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. That's yeah. No, I appreciate that. And even in France, we saw that uh, one of our one of maybe he might have been. I don't remember where the young man was from, but he had quite literally had to leap a tall building in a single bound, and yeah. now he's deserving. Now of, he's a citizen. Yes. Right. So you can either be hyper quote unquote uh, traditionally intelligent by white mm-hmm. folks' standards, or if you save a white child, you know, mm-hmm. and all, none of that should be required. Right. Mo- freedom of movement. Like, so bound, like borders literally were created um, by colonial imperialists, right? Like yeah. white supremacists. Like, so the idea that we now all somehow need to be somehow valuable to the, the country that be um, is quite literally uh, an ableist construct. And an, I'll give you an example. When black folks were purchasing their, um, their legal freedom mm-hmm. uh, in the United States context, uh, one of the requirements in many of the states 
was not just that the black person would have to pay themselves themselves and their family members off to master so-called master but there also was a um a fee that the black person would have to pay to the state so that they did not become and i quote a public charge and that's the language that we see today yes. about uh people becoming a public charge oh you yeah. know we can't accept uh, disabled migrants or anyone who might i mean and it's not even disabled folks that means if you have children who rely on uh the food the food um being provided in schools uh mm -hmm. if you have uh you know illness or something anything right and now you're a quote unquote public charge that is ableism um but it's always tinged uh and the other um the other oppression that's needed to kind of justify it so in this case um you know alleged race or ethnicity uh religious uh alleged religious uh ties etc so yeah and people need to be on guard and on notice and people need to start naming that as exactly what it is um which is all of those things it's not one or the other and this is why you're you're the host of a podcast the co-host of a podcast called at the intersection mm -hmm. uh, because if you don't name it we actually help perpetuate it by simply saying it's just racism or right. it's just ableism we have to name it as precisely what it is um and so yeah you're you're absolutely right i don't think most people realize that this idea of productivity the 8 hour work day you know the 5 hour 5 day work week all of that stuff is actually ableism <laughs> so yeah it's it's quite quite ironic yeah and it's interesting too how much i think our communities internalize these ideas of productivity and how we have to be you know like valuable members of society or worthwhile members of society and like can internalize all of these tropes about not needing support and not needing help and like being able to do things on your own like the idea that you know that you could be you could be depressed or that you could have a disability. Like that's not something that we want to talk about because we want to be seen as strong and we want to be seen as valuable. And it's, I feel like that sort of fear in using those words or acknowledging those truths ends up just sort of being more violence against us. I think you're right. And I, but I, I want to put the onus back on where it belongs. Mm -hmm. So we have only internalized that because we've been forced to, right? Yeah. Um our communities at their heart did not exist in the ways that they currently exist as a result of colonialism or imperialism, right? So interdependence is part and parcel of most indigenous communities roots, right? Mm -hmm. Um the idea that we're all going to be working together, the idea that we're not putting uh, grandma in any any sort of a uh, medically industrialized uh, space we're just going to work together to support grandma until she passes away um all of those things were quite literally the root of most indigenous communities uh we'll have some people who go out for the hunt some people who stay to make sure that they're prepared to cook you know mm -hmm. and and that's perfectly fine there was no problem with that um the reasons we've had to internalize a lot of this um is for quite literally survival purposes right so we had to force our children to work as hard as possible so they weren't sold off right? right that's a real concern that's a real valid response to violence uh if you know that your child who's disabled uh will be you know slower than the other folks we have to figure out a way that that child can now speed up their process or help slow down the other people um to keep everybody in pace so when we see uh convict leasing prison songs when we actually hear um um slave what so called slave songs a lot of them were uh, centered around work 
and keeping pace, keeping time. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that was because they didn't want anyone to come back with more or less than the other for fear of the whip or death or selling off, right? So we have had to create survival strategies, most of which have centered around um, productivity mm -hmm. uh, um, for various reasons. And that moves on to today. Like that's why our parents say, you've got to do really well in school because they know mm -hmm. what happens to black children who quote unquote, don't do well in school. They know better than having their kids labeled as disabled because for black children labeled as disabled, we end up in the class that holds us back as opposed to providing, getting provided support. So our parents are very aware. And even though they don't necessarily have that language to understand the oppressive system in which they've come up in, all they know is that they're trying to save us, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and, 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 it, and, right. And so it also just gives us more grace to them and for them and for their approaches, their hard line, often hard line and sometimes violent approaches to rearing us. Right. Yes, um, very true. It, you know, and, and love comes in many forms. But when you're operating under systems like this, the love often has to be harsh and has mm -hmm. to be unforgiving. And, and we often take that out on our people, um, our elders but they're doing it quite literally to save our lives. And that doesn't justify any violence. It just, again, puts the onus where it needs to go. Right. Um, we can unlearn some of this behavior, but not until we're able to name uh, what is happening and why is it happening um, and what's problematic about the root of that behavior, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. And it's true, like the idea of having to show our family, our, like our loved ones grace for just sort of how they reared us and the, you know, the harshness in a way, like, I think it, like that wasn't something I was able to do until I became an adult and realized like the reason that my mom was so like, she was so strict yeah. about how I was doing a school and how my brother was doing a school is because I yeah. like, I was square in that group of girls who because we weren't hyperactive. Our ADD wasn't diagnosed as children, but like mm. it definitely, it was definitely something that I had. And my brother was, he's 10 years younger than me, but he also like, since he was hyperactive, quote unquote, um, he was easier to spot and easier to diagnose. And that was my mom's great fear, right? That if somebody labeled us that way, they would use it as an excuse to not support us, to not allow us to be at that school, to hold mm -hmm. us back in some way and to, to sort of keep us from having the things that they came to this country to give mm -hmm. us. And so mm -hmm. a lot of the way she raised us was out of that fear and a lot of that like mm -hmm. desire to keep us safe in a really hostile environment. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And, and yeah. I, I find that when I'm talking with, uh, especially black folks of the entire diaspora, it doesn't matter where in the world, um, mm -hmm. where I'm talking to folks who, where they're from, but we have a very common experience, uh, with, with our elders, uh, when they are harsh, they are doing it, you know, out of often fear. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you have to, we have to figure out ways to have a lot of those conversations. They're so important. And I think that they would help us heal um, from a lot of the traumas that actually were caused as a result of some of uh, what could be viewed as abuse, so-called discipline, et cetera, um, yeah. that, you know, they really felt was necessary. Um, and you know, that can be argued what, any way you want to cut it, but I think just naming the, the, uh, the Genesis is really important. And, um, and related to that, this ode to the runners that I'm working on, I specifically talk about, um, how natural a response to, 
Um, it's not always that we fear law enforcement. It's that we know that they fear us, right? Mm-hmm. So often the we're way not- they act out of fear is, yeah, yeah you is, have yeah. or dead. Right, and, and they have the power to kill us, right? And mm-hmm. so we, it's the fear of the power that they hold. And uh, there's one, I think it was W.B. Du Bois actually, who said, um, I am not afraid of you. I am a victim of your fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I feel like that gives a, a lot of credence to our natural responses to run or freeze or whatever the natural response for each individual person is to law enforcement. Um, but to discount it as some sort of resisting arrest, uh, mm-hmm. as some sort of a, um, inane behavior, um, is ableism and it's racism. Um, and it's a complete misunderstanding of our past and our current um, lived experiences, and it does not give Black people, especially and Indigenous folks, especially uh, the benefit of being human. Yeah. Right? Um, it doesn't allow us to have any sort of expansive humanity, and that's always been what ableism and racism and classism and all the isms have done: is shrinking people's humanity, um, shrinking our ability to exist and and have the same reactions as little old Sally. Which right. okay, Sally's crying because the cop is making her nervous. Oh, Sally. Don't worry, you go ahead and have a great rest of the day, but mm-hmm. get Jermaine in there shaking. Oh, now you look guilty of something. What's right. going Jermaine on? Do you have a gun on you? Yeah. Right. So it's, it's uh, you know, I, I just think it's really important that we understand um, and also the gaslighting of Black response, right? So often what cops will say, um, uh, speaking of Jermaine, there was a man named Jermaine Rush in Asheville, North Carolina, close to where you are, um, last year in the spring or summer who he was literally walking home from work and uh, it's late at night. He, he explained to the police on camera, I just got off of work. I'm exhausted. I'm trying to get home. And he said, why are y'all always harassing me? And the two white cops, one looks at him and says, this is all in your head. Now, mind you, it's 12 o'clock at night. He's walking right. up the street. They're busy talking about he's jaywalking, trying to give him a ticket. Right. Um, and, you know, and sure enough, within a minute and a half, he was beat to a pulp, tased, et cetera. For nothing, quite literally for being, quote unquote, um, voicey with them or, or chatty with them, mm-hmm. talking back, so-called, right? So it, it's the gaslighting. And then after the white, the white cops brutalize him, they say, this is your fault. Why'd you make us do this, man? Why'd you make us do da-da-da? So it's this gaslighting of, of us for our, our, our real and natural responses to these things. And then to pretend that it was all your fault that you just got shot in the back. Right. <laughs> because you ran from like, me. Why, why would you, you do that? Exactly. Yeah. Why did you make? And the question is the prompt. Like the bullet is in the, the back is not the reason. That's right. Yeah. The provocation is all wrong and it's been all wrong all along. The answer is the question is not why did you run? The question is why can't you see my humanity? Why mm-hmm. did you shoot? Why are y'all holding my people captive? Why are we stuck on your plantation? Right. So drape it, Omania, call it what you will. But running from things like that. It's the highest form of resistance. Mm-hmm. It should be honored, right? I, I'm like, yo, like, to say, you're literally communicating, I want to live. I want to go home. I want to see my family. I want to I survive. That's what you're literally saying. And we've criminalized it and deemed it insane, right? Um, and so, again, I don't know how people are trying to have conversations about racism without talking about ableism. I have no idea how all these white disabled folks are trying to have conversations about ableism without racism. Yeah. Um, I personally just cannot separate them in my mind and heart and, and, and my body. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of where I stand on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's real. 
one question that just comes to mind, like this, the work that you're doing and just sort of like, yeah, like the fact that this work lives in you in a very real way, like how do you just, how do you take care of yourself? Um, that's honestly is a struggle and, um, trying to undo ableism and racism, like within my own person is a a large part of my work. Um, because I, I still have, um, all of the things, right. All of the feelings that you mentioned, Oh, I never really, I I knew there was a concern around this idea of quote unquote productivity, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I put my fingers on it. And I'm still trying to get it away from me, right? I'm still clawing at it, trying to, to move it further from me, um, trying, to, t- trying to really dismantle um, all of those things within myself. So part of my self-care practice is talking to folks who understand disability and racism in ways that um, I can expand my own understanding. So folks like Dustin Gibson, uh, Leroy Moore, uh, a lot of folks who are Black and Indigenous and disabled um, so it's like you, it's like, where do you find your solace? It's usually in people who are uh, connected to your identity in some way uh, at the intersections with you, um, you know, living with that experience. Um, I just uh, have a support that I've put in place um, who literally writes food into my eating. You know, right. it's, it seems <laughs> it seems very simple, but writes eating into my calendar. So I remember to eat. I have accountability partners who check in on me to ask me if I've drank water and gone to the bathroom. Like, um, and, and in many instances, people would think that that makes you less than, uh, again, that's ableism, but really I just, I do some things well and I don't do other things well. And that's true about everyone. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, some people need a little bit more support in areas and some people need less. Um, my partner who, who passed away, Kaite Davidson has a quote and I'm paraphrasing, um, Kaite would say that um, the difference between the needs of disabled people and people who've been labeled as disabled and the needs of people who have not been labeled as disabled is that the needs of those who have not been labeled as disabled have simply been normalized. So mm-hmm. by that, um, like, so we're all interdependent. So if you think about the clothes that each of us are wearing right now, the chair that we're sitting on, think about the last time you asked a loved one for uh, advice on a particular decision you needed to make. But if you happen not to be labeled as disabled, people are like, oh, you just needed help deciding what apartment you you know you wanted to rent or how much you were able to pay. But the moment when it's a so-called, yeah, you know, you, know, you just needed to talk through that, right? right. Um, and the same is true if you look at um, in university or, or classes, the moment a child who's labeled as disabled has a question for the, for the professor or the teacher, oh, you need additional help, like this is a problem. Mm-hmm. But if it's the if it's the so-called high achiever, oh yeah, let's go sit down, do coffee, no problem. But that is support, right? right? Like, um, so it's we've normalized those kinds of supports for people who are not labeled as disabled, for people who are not black, for people who are not um, low income, houseless. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, now all of a sudden your your need for shelter over your head becomes a problem, um, whereas everybody needs that anyway. Um, And so um, I guess with my definition of ableism, the most important part of my definition, and this gets missed often in most of the disability community, is that you don't have to be disabled to experience ableism. And in Mm -hmm. fact, if you live at the intersections of any identity, you will experience ableism because women are supposed to produce more, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, uh, disabled people can't actually be disabled and, and need to produce something. Uh, you can't be a public charge. Uh, indigenous people, oh, they're all out there not doing anything they're supposed to do. Yeah. So all of us have actually experienced uh, ableism, whether or not we're disabled, um, if you live at the margins. Trans folks, LGBTQI folks, uh, you know, all of that. And I think that's the most important part of the definition. Um, because once you understand that ableism is what's undergirding most of these other forms, if not all of the other forms, I've challenged people to have me talk through each each form of oppression that they can name. And quite literally, there hasn't been one that I haven't been able to um, figure out how ableism is quite literally at the root. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's it's radical by its nature. Um, and it's it's so amorphous that you often don't see it um, because it, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's it's like a chameleon, <laughs> the way that yeah. it operates. It's constantly so, shifting, like the goalposts yeah. are moving, and yeah, yeah. So it's weird. I just like, and this isn't necessarily connected to anything specific that we've talked about already, but like I've only recently awoken to the fact that I'm disabled. Like I have, um, I have arthritis, and I don't have any cartilage in my left knee, and like this is something that has taken me. This has been true since I was like. 17 or 18, but it's not something that I've been able to fully acknowledge until very recently. And mm-hmm. yeah, like sort of my self-perception and just like the idea of me being like physically capable and physically productive. Like mm-hmm. I used to be an athlete. And so the fact that I like can't do things that I could do when I was young, part of that is just because I'm 31 and like, I'm not a teenager anymore. But part of that is just because mm-hmm. I have less ability than when I was younger. And yeah, like trying to unlearn all of the toxic ideas about productivity and what makes me valuable has been, it's been a real journey, I guess. Like I'm still working on it. And there are some days that I just feel like I just use like terrible language about my body and like what it's able to do. And my wife has to be like, listen, like you're not, your worth is not bound up in what your body is physically capable of doing. And like, Ooh, preach. yeah, like that's, I mean, God that's bless right. her. Like she is, she's a wonderful person, but like, yeah, I, it's hard to, really believe that some days and they're like some days it's easier and some days I'm just like I yeah I can't un- I can't have this be unlearned today do you know what I mean mm-hmm. yes I I mean what you're saying is so real there's two things I want to respond to to that one is I just want to honor that you are literally on a journey um and that like that journey will continue for the rest of your life and that's a yeah. that's a gift um and so what folks who are in the disability justice community don't say is like, oh, everything's fun and, and hunky-dory about being disabled. We acknowledge that being disabled has its pros and has its cons. You have to ask the person. And even in, from day to day, like one day you'll be like, oh, this doesn't bother me at all. You're out swimming. Right. And the right. next day you're like, oh, my God, I can't move. This is hell on earth. And that's real. And it should be acknowledged. So a lot of disability rights folks are like, I'm disabled and proud and everything is great with disability. Like that's actually just not like a, a real lived experience and, and yes. kind of how people experience disability. Like some disability is very painful. Some disability makes our, our youth die early, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, these sorts of things. Um, and so that has to be acknowledged. So I want to, um, you're being vulnerable and honest about exactly what your experience is. And that's a good thing. Um, you want to, you do want to do that um, on your journey. Um, the second thing is that, what I'll say is related to um, just this feeling of um, sometimes you, you're not ready to unlearn or be positive that day. I have a piece that I wrote called Disability Ain't For Your Dozen. 
And there's a part in there where I write, this was a piece I wrote specifically for black folks. Um, and uh, there's a part in there where I talk about um, the fact that ableism and has convinced even those of us who know better that some particular people are, are smarter than us, are better than us. Like I know better than that. But some days I, I do find myself saying, well, maybe, gosh, maybe they're all right. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and that's because this is generations of it. We've, it's learned behavior, generations into it. And so we're not going to get rid of it overnight. Um, It is a journey for every single one of us, even those of us, I know better than to think that I know better than to, um, but I, sometimes you, I quite literally can't help myself. And that's how you know that, that something is a systemic problem, right? <laughs> is right. when it's not about you, the individual saying, oh, I, you know, I'm sad about this. It's like the system has made me believe this thing that I know is not true, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think we have to, again, put the onus back on the system where, where these thoughts and feelings often are coming from. And then also your own body where it's like, yo, this really just hurts and I'm really sick today and I can't function. Um, And and that's not a good feeling. (laughs) Um, And so giving your body and your mind grace uh, around that too. But yeah, I just want to honor your journey. And I um, I appreciate you being so vulnerable uh, in this conversation around that. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying, I guess vulnerability is also like sort of a difficult, it's a difficult thing to sit in it's just not like it's not my typical mode and something that's another journey that I'm kind of on just being okay with being vulnerable about just anything mm. that's real yeah, I guess I I know we we don't have a ton of time left I feel like you said so many like nuggets that I want to dive into but I like I want to be respectful of your time um, I think my one, like, I do have a question just about the difference between disability rights as a movement and disability justice, because mm-hmm. you mentioned that, like, these two groups have different language and sort of different priorities and how y- you talk about disability. And so would love if you could just shine a light on that. Mm. Yeah, so um, where did I begin? Um, in large part, the disability rights movement has been informed by the law. Um, It's this idea that disabled people have particularized rights because they are, you know, inherently human and then the law bestows these things upon them, right? So it's rights-based justice, so-called. And so the legal definition of disability is, and I'll say it a little bit slowly, a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity. Now, what you and I have just discussed is that in many of our marginalized communities, in fact, most, if not all of marginalized communities, mm-hmm. we quite literally function day to day without any sort of substantial limitations, at least that we can acknowledge because we're, we literally lived our whole lives with trauma, pain, mm-hmm. CPTSD, um, whatever, whatever the disability is. And it's so innate in us that we don't, that the system, the legal system uh, doesn't acknowledge that our disability exists simply because it doesn't fit that narrow definition, right? So our kid who's hungry at school gets labeled, uh, you know, uh, unruly. uh, But that's actually, if you want to call it a disability, being hungry every day is kind of a disability. (laughs) So you could either address that hunger issue 
or say, oh, you know, well, Jermaine doesn't have um, a formal uh, IEP and doesn't have a formal diagnosis. So therefore, they're not going to get those accommodations, right? And so what happens under the disability rights framework is that people who have money, who have health insurance, uh, who have parents who know how to navigate these systems and who have time to navigate these systems, uh, get the supports. People who are in contact with attorneys who are disability rights attorneys, ask them to take on a case, right? Mm -hmm. But the people who (laughs) don't have diagnoses because our communities don't have insurance, uh, we don't talk about disability in the same way. Uh, because it's so normalized in our community that we don't even recognize that there's a thing there that might be deemed disability. Um, don't get supports. Uh, and and once, for example, you mentioned that your your mom probably recognized that you and one of your siblings had maybe a, a developmental or, or, or learning disability and decided kind of, oh, let's not really talk about that. Let's, with one of you did and with the other of you didn't and made some conscious decisions around that based on her understanding of the systems at the times in which both of you grew up. Um, Those are the kinds of calculus that our parents have to, it's almost like a roulette, really. Do I want to? Do I not want to? What can be, what are the the negative ramifications of those things? Mm -hmm. Now, under the disability justice framework, so disability justice was, um, is a practice that was created by all black or negatively racialized um, folks with disabilities. And the reasons folks had to come up with this practice is because disability doesn't always reach us. In fact, it doesn't just um, It's a holistic understanding of justice um, that not just includes, and that disability rights focuses on quote unquote independence, um, focuses on uh, access. Mm-hmm. Um, disability justice focuses on interdependence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Focuses on access, yes, as love, but love as praxis. Um, focuses on um, anti-everything, so anti-racism, anti-trans um, antagonism, anti-sexism. Focusing on all of the things because we recognize that folks who are disabled are experiencing all of these things at the same time. You can't simply focus that, and then the person is still being beat down in other ways, right? Um, but but also just that, you know, disability rights quite literally doesn't reach us. And that's because, again, our disabilities have been erased and because disability is so fluid, right? So disability, your your ADHD, for example, looks different than Billy's ADHD. Uh, someone's aut- a black autistic child looks a little bit different than the white autistic child, right? Everyone's cancer is not the same, even if you both have the exact same kind of cancer. So we understand that with other disabilities, but we don't understand that with emotional, traumatic, trauma-induced, poverty-induced disabilities. Um, And white folks uh, in positions of power tend not to understand most of the disabilities that are wrought by environmental injustice, uh, economic injustice, racism. So those just get kind of pushed to the wayside um, when those are the kinds of violences that are creating a lot of the disabilities um, in our communities that need to be addressed. So disability rights is just lacking in a lot of ways. And that's not to say that it doesn't have value, right? And you understand that often when I have this conversation with white disabled folks, they're all, you know, offended. And yeah, I can't believe you would say that. Look at what the Americans with Disabilities Act has done. And and yes, we, we of course, <laughs> that's been of help. But to fail to recognize um, that this is just not working for everyone, uh, again, does a disservice to everyone. And again, this is why you have this podcast called At the Intersection. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 You can't 
I feel like you can't just pull out one thing at the expense of all the others, because that means you're, you're not honestly looking at the one thing because you're forgetting all of the other things. Right. Exactly. You're actually perpetuating a lot of the problems um, that occur. Um, And just understanding that the law, this is kind of really important. And I think people miss this so much. And this is across the board, not only related to disability or race, but people who look to the law as some sort of end-all, be-all, salvation, mm-hmm. uh, litigation is only going to get you so far. And it yeah. usually, in the, in the disability context, just helps entities figure out ways to avoid being sued next time, right? That doesn't mean right. that they're going to be... <laughs> that doesn't mean they're going to... Beyond what they're legally required to do if the law is what they're basing this off of. Right. So you get that. And, and, and so sure, that might help the one person who sued that one time. Mm-hmm. But how long will that last? Who gets to sue? Right. If you look at most of the, lo- the cases that are coming forward, mm-hmm. m- majority wealthy, uh, upper echelons, less than marginalized people mm-hmm. uh, have these great disability rights lawsuits. And I don't know that they're benefiting the vast majority of disabled communities. And what I'll say about disability, and I probably should have opened with this, is what we know is that in every single marginalized community, disability is disproportionately represented. Mm. And that is because of the, the, the oppression that each of those marginalized communities experience and the violence that each of those marginalized communities experience. Whether or not it's named as disability, Um, What we know is that low-income folks, women, trans folks, uh, gender non-conforming folks, black folks, um, folks even in Jewish communities, uh, which is a whole other conversation as well, but necessary to have, um, have as a result of years and years of oppression or deprivation of particularized things that are needed to survive and thrive, um, have higher rates of disability. Um, And often those higher rates of disability are discounted, are erased, are ignored, um, are gaslit. Yeah, that's right. Or blamed on us. And so um, I I think that's really important framework to understand why talking about disability is critically necessary at the intersection of any marginalized identity. Um, And disability is really the tie that binds all of us. Right. Any race can have a disability. Um, You could be white indigenous, whatever. It's it's the one thing that cuts across every single identity, um, quite literally all the time. Um, so indigenous folks, because of the violence indigenous folks continue to experience, um, have higher rates of disability than even black communities, right? Um, and, and, and it makes sense if you actually think about uh, a lot of these things. Um, it's, it's a really um, wretched, wretched way of making sense, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, that, you know, addiction disabilities would be higher uh, right. in communities uh, that have been traumatized <laughs> and need, a, need an like, escape. Yeah, like this stuff lives in our bodies, like like everything that you mentioned, like environmental injustice, economic injustice, you know, all of these things end up living in our bodies. And so they show up as, you know, like higher rates of disability and higher rates of hunger and higher rates of addiction, disability, like heart disease. Yeah. All, heart the things, disease, right? all these things. And then, you know, people will turn around and say, well, it's because of the Bojangles. And it's like, well, I mean, first of all, hands off my Bojangles. This is what I need to be happy. But like, second of all, this isn't my doing. Like this is the entire system that has conspired to keep us marginalized and keep us away from freedom basically to keep us from liberation and that's right that's what's showing up it's not the bojangles it's not 
That's it's right. And it's often things. not even hereditary in the ways that a lot of white people's research likes to try to show, mm-hmm. right? It's literally, it's from the, so people refuse, white folks, especially who are doing quote unquote research around heredity and disability, forget that, oh, that child, that mother, that grandmother, that great grandmother are literally living in the same community, mm-hmm. experiencing the same traumas. Now you're going to say, oh, they all just have some heart disease. It's genetic as opposed to, I wonder what's going on around them in their community that all four of them, one's a baby at the age of five, already has heart disease. Right. Um, oh, you mean it's the economic and, and nutritional and uh, violent conditions? Oh, there's that, right? So right. it's this, uh, again, it's this urge to figure out how to blame our communities for things that quite literally... Um, are, are, are foisted upon us uh, by very powerful and destructive systems. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's something else. It really is something else. <laughs> well, something that uh, my friend and mentor, Omishade Bernie Scott says is that if pain and trauma are part of, like if we inherit pain and trauma from our ancestors, we also inherit their joy and their resilience and their liberation. And so, you know, it's, it can be easy to get bogged down in the fact that like we are living in the trauma of our ancestors and living in the trauma of our communities, but there's also so much joy to be found and so much strength and power. And yes. that's something I try to try to hold on to when I feel like, wow, this, I just cannot, I just cannot win in this system. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's this, uh, the, the popular quote that we are our ancestors wildest dreams, but they did, they dreamed about us. Mm-hmm. Like we were, we're their dream. Like we, most of us aren't even supposed to physically be here. We were, we genocide by colonialists, whether from Germany to Dutch people to quote unquote Americans, England or Brits, they literally were trying to kill pretty much all of us off. So the fact right. that we're even here is like, a miracle in and of itself, but like, but yeah. And then just in the joy of it, like black joy is real. So like, even just, if you look at how we laugh, like yeah. our laughter, like we'd be running around the room. <laughs> like, it's, it's, we just, we live to our fullest, our music. Like there's so much to have joy um, in and around. Um, and I feel like our ancestors had to, had to have that to survive. And again, yeah. this is why when I talk about how our experiences, like it's, Yes, they were living in deep, deep, deep throes of violence, but they also had to find joy in things like or they wouldn't have survived because there wasn't medicine. There was no doctor's couches. There was no like they had to figure out how were they going to survive. And that means that joy existed in some meaningful ways. And we have evidence of that all over the place. I think in our bodies and in our in our hearts is kind of where it exists um, the most. But we we also do have a. A musical evidence of that and we have cultural evidence of that um and it's something that should be honored as well for sure yeah i feel that um so i have one last question for you before we sign off and this is a question that we like to ask all of our guests um so how do you want your reparations mm. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> it's a doozy mm. Give me a second to process that. Yeah, for sure. Gosh. That's such a, um, wow, such a gift of a question. Um, 
you know, it's going to sound, um, I, I would, it's going to sound a little bit selfish, but I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Go to it. I think we, we deserve to be a little bit selfish. Um, I want to, um, I want to um, have, I want to, I don't want to be doing the work that I'm doing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> My reparations is like, fix your shit. Like, <laughs> the work that we are doing right now is literally was literally caused by people who are not my well they are my ancestors through rape but are not my chosen ancestors um and here i am hundreds of years later doing precisely the same work as those who came before me um in a little bit different of a way and i'm beyond bone tired um mm-hmm. I'm beyond in a rage. Uh, it's it's the injustice of of doing this work um, to try to free people from cages and free people from um, unjust material conditions. Um, hundreds of years after my ancestors landed on this stolen land, um, after being stolen from our homeland, like it, it's you can't put it into words there's no language that encompasses the feeling of never knowing what my name is like I literally still have the name of people who own my people Mm. like there's no there's no words to explain to explain it like and it makes sense that our people are angry um and um I think reparations for me is that not just that I shouldn't be doing any of this work, that all of the things that are wrong need to be made right, um, however possible, but like that my children and their children and their children should never um, be where I am mentally at this point um, in my life as a result of people who are not my people. (laughs) Um, So it's like, yo, like, make this stop. Like, I don't, it's, I I don't know. The reparations for me is like, I shouldn't be doing this. Like there's no reason for me to still be doing this when my ancestors um, have put in all the blood. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know. I guess it's not selfish at all. It's like, no, remotely. Yeah. We're tired. And uh, folks, the folks in positions of power have to really step up and, and change this we'll be you know we could do this for seven more generations and right. and they'll be reading what i wrote and as sad as i am and whatever the word that is that i'm that i have this emotion that i have that i can't put words to whatever that is i don't want them to be feeling that seven generations from now no like that's just wild so i i want and and that to me is liberation it's like it's not just my personal it's like freeing the our unborn um our yet unborn um i don't even have children right now (laughs) i'm kind of like yo yeah i don't want them to feel this like and even not my children because you know and black and indigenous communities we have children who are not our own Mm -hmm. um that we kind of take care of and so you know i just i want i just want an end to all the violence to all the injustice um and i you know reparations for me I, i wish i knew my name (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know my name. I don't know my people. You know, and I, I hate talking to white 
fight people about it because they'll say ignorant things like, oh, just go get a DNA test. I'm like, you don't even understand. That's not the point. Like, <laughs> no, you're missing. You're missing. First of all, the, I'm not even going to talk about how those those tests are used against people. But second of all, it's like it's not it's not about the, it's about the culture. It's like the loss of like my 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 story. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you know, and and in that and in that way, I think that. Um, reparations can never be repaid. Like I'm literally still trying to find my kin. Yeah. <laughs> like, and and I and all of my, all of the generations will be continuing to do that. Oh, where are your people from? Um, yeah. That that is something that can never. I mean, unless they were to find all of the records of you know all the people they just sold um, as as chattel. Like, and then that's the thing they didn't even keep track because. We were, we were not even human. Yeah. Yeah. No. And so far as property is concerned, um, we were, we were quite literally the brutes of, you know, we were literally lumped into categories with cattle and horses. And, um, so yeah, I I think I would, I want to know my name. Mm -hmm. I want to know my people. I want to know my culture. Um, obviously I have a culture now. Right. And I don't want to discount or devalue that, but I think you understand my point. And then yeah. the second is to like free up my, the next generations from this kind of toil and labor and exhaustion um, from doing the work that they should never have to do. So, yeah. Well, that wasn't remotely selfish. I think you said it. Up too much. <laughs> um, one giant diamond that's just for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess it's not at all. Yeah. Well, I really thanks for thanks for that question, though. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can appreciate that, and I really appreciate your time and your your wisdom and your vulnerability today. I think it is it has just been really illuminating for me, and it has been very emotional for me. And so, I appreciate you, yeah, just engaging in this conversation with me. Mm, it's been my honor. Thanks so much for. Um, inviting me to be with you, um, be present. Um, I really appreciate the work you're doing as well to bring about um, some more clarity to some of these conversations that need more nuance. So thank you. Thanks very much. Yay. All right. that's our show thanks for listening our music was produced by dj seven keys you can find him and more of his music on instagram at mr underscore seven keys that's the numeral seven you can find us on itunes and apple podcast anchor stitcher spotify google podcast and wherever else podcasts are found but we are still not on soundcloud <clears throat> we might get there i don't know 2019 is a new year <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook under at the podcast. That's A-T-T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. I don't think I spelled that right. At the y- podcast. Y'all figure it out. The, our, email address, <laughs> our email address is at the intersection of at gmail.com. And our website is at dash the dash intersection.com. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Facebook. Or you can support us on anchor.fm slash at the dash intersection slash support. Yeah, um, please rate and review. It really, really helps. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Like people who haven't heard of us before will see, oh, wow, people like them. And yeah, we can start reading five star reviews on the air. Let's do it. People start writing them. Yeah. So yeah, until next time. All right. Take it easy, y'all.